to steal the game for Japan. One of the most famous victories in the history of sports, I'd go as far as saying, not just in the game of rugby union. One of the most famous victories in the history of sport, not just in a game of rugby union. What an amazing call. And those are the sounds of an amazing moment. At the 2015 Rugby World Cup, Japan beat South Africa for the first time in its history in a game of rugby. It was its first victory ever over what are considered tier one nations in the sport. Five months from now, the centerpiece of World Rugby's calendar, the World Cup, is going to head to Japanese shores for the very first time. It's going to be held in Asia for the first time too. Over the last decade, rugby fans the world over have gawked in awe at the rapid growth of the sport in Japan. It's grown in Asia generally, and it's truly been impressive. Japan has 200,000 players and 7,300 clubs. Only England, the country that founded the sport, boasts more activity at the grassroots level. So why has it taken so long for them to be competitive? Why are they only now being recognised by rugby fans and media for what they are? That's going to take us a long look back as a question, so it's best that we start at the beginning. Now, there's a widely perpetrated misunderstanding in rugby, as we've discussed earlier, that Japan is a nation where rugby is new or emerging. Now, most sources would tell us that the first games of rugby in Japan were played by British officers in the late 1800s. Now, while some rugby historians, and Michael Galbraith of Yokohama Athletic Football Club comes to mind allocate significant importance to this rugby heritage, I'm not so sure. I think there's going to be an element of relegating this to ancient history for me. And for much of the early history of rugby, games are exhibitions. You got 22 of your fittest and finest together, you pit them against another organisation for bragging rights, and there was a strongly representative element. This led to many wonderful rugby traditions, don't get me wrong. I mean, we do city versus country, we do army versus navy, we have all kinds of barbarians games. Uh, it does, unfortunately, sit aside for me, though, from the point on this occasion. While some rugby was played in Japan at the time, as it was across the rugby-playing world, rugby in Japan looked basically the same as everywhere else. The purpose of this story is not to look at that. It's to look at what's made Japanese rugby so different. So often, we separate rugby's history into professionalism and bloody ages ago. So before 1995, just to explain, rugby players could not technically earn a wage for playing the game. This was in the spirit of amateurism. It's a sports phenomenon. It was once pretty popular, but it's basically dead everywhere now, except for a couple of niche leagues. Gaelic football comes to mind, uh, college football in the United States. And I had this imagining of Japanese rugby, I suppose, as leaping from British officers playing in the army to the 1995 World Cup, where a history of most Japanese players showed up to execute one of the worst performances in rugby history. But we're, we're going to get to that performance later. That misunderstanding is a big part of why this project is so interesting. Most people in the rugby world seem to think rugby's entering a brand new market for the first time. It's the third largest economy in the world. This is so exciting. They, they built it all from scratch. It's an incredible story. They're sort of right about one thing. It's an incredible story. The new and emerging part, not so much. Japan has had a national rugby competition since 1948. Yes, 1948. Look, in comparison, when Japanese rugby began the first form of its national competition, the Australian Rugby Union didn't even exist. The game was operated entirely at the state level, and the administration was a mishmash of state rugby unions. This led me to a truly fascinating question when I found this out, because I didn't know it either. If everyone was playing in Japan, rugby's been so real for so long this whole time, why on earth were they so bad for so long? Well, this is where it gets a little bit interesting, because for a while there, they weren't. 
In their first appearance in Britain as an official side, the Japanese rugby touring team in stripes lines up to meet Easter Morgan at Penny Greg in the Ronda. Japan kick off right to left and attack. Halfback Ryozo Emizato gets the ball out of the ruck and feeds back to Bungie Shimazaki. Japan scores the first try, but Vivian Jenkins evens the score with a try for Glamorgan. Now, Japan actually saw reasonable success in the post-war period for a time. Sure, they weren't enormously successful, but in the amateur era, they often represented themselves well. They did well on tour. This is where we go back to how it sort of happened. So despite the deaths of many players in the war and massive damage to infrastructure, huge Japanese conglomerates, private conglomerates, first among them Kobe Steel, invested in rugby teams. They believed it would raise morale and foster company loyalty for their employees. Tours were few and far between in this period. So it's hard to track the growth of the players' international competitiveness, even if they did have a good domestic game. But in a 1968 tour of New Zealand, Japan did win five of its nine games, and they beat the Junior All Blacks 23-19 in 1968 as well. In 1971, England toured Japan. They won only 6-3 on a rainy day in Tokyo, and Japan's highest point in the 20th century, and certainly in the history of amateur rugby, was when they beat a Scotland 15 that was the Scotland national team, basically in all but name. They played all their best players in 1990. And in a lot of ways, the Japan in 1990, and this is what's interesting for me, really resembled the team of 2015. They seemed poised to take on the world. They were getting better by the year. So what happened? An undoubted low point for Japan's rugby momentum was a 1995 World Cup defeat at the hands of New Zealand. The irresistible nature of the New Zealand display was emphasised by their complete lack of mercy for their overwhelmed opponents. And a last-minute score from captain Paul Henderson confirmed their whistle-to-whistle commitment. Their stunning performance was polished off by Simon Culhane's 20th conversion, which beat the best of 17 and made it a final total of 145. 145-17. Now, that loss was against a second-string team. Japan showed a total lack of capacity to compete. New Zealand's tally is still the highest to any team has ever achieved in a Rugby World Cup match, just barely pipping Australia versus Namibia, by the way, and it's certainly a low point in Japanese rugby history. As I went on to discover, things were also a long, long way from getting better. Despite Japan's rich rugby history, there was just no infrastructure in place at this point to produce elite players. There was no coaching know-how. Nobody was willing to take the blame. Rapid urbanisation and really high demand for land in Japan actually caused clubs and rugby in general to really struggle for pitches, which is a uniquely Japanese problem for them. And it relegates rugby to being played outside of the massive urban centres where, as you might imagine, the vast majority of Japanese people live and work. On top of that, this is where it got interesting for me too. Various criticisms started coming running down on the Japanese rugby system in terms of their coaching. So it was long run through universities and private companies. And one, actually one story that I thought was very funny was uh, there were players who reported that they had ex-military coaches who vastly overestimated the importance, at least in the player's view, of discipline rather than skill. And they had this dreaded drill called the running drill. 
So imagine this. It's 1999. I don't know. You're preparing for a test match. You're in the Japanese rugby team. You arrive at training. There's world-class facilities by your view, in your view, you know, and you get to training and someone's forgotten a water bottle. So your coach says, all right, everyone, we're doing the running drill. What you would then do is you would line up all 15 players, so all the props, all the rest of the forwards, all the backs, everyone in a row of 22 along the try line and you would do through the hands. So that's just passing it from one player to the next, all in one direction and then all the way back and you would do that running 100 metres up to the other end and all the way back as fast as you could and players have reported this going for up to two hours. Uh, So clearly there were coaching problems. It was becoming punitive, it wasn't based on skill and there were cultural issues too. So at this point, the Japanese Rugby Football Union, that's the JRFU, thought that the system was poised for a takeover and they wanted to make this a truly national body. They wanted to professionalize the sport with the advent of professionalism and they wanted to relegate in particular those private companies from directly owning their teams to just being major shareholders or sponsors or something like that. And that led to them forming the top 14. After years of poor results, so this is between 1995 and 2000, the top four team was introduced in 2003. Uh, It was Japan's first truly national competition uh, and it overhauled the system through which players were produced. Most importantly too, more foreign players were allowed to play in Japan. A big criticism of Japan's play at the time was that there were not enough foreign players playing in the Japanese league and that meant that the Japanese players were only playing against each other. They weren't having access to rugby know-how and rugby ability from players overseas that were producing the real talent. This drive increased investment in junior rugby, it relegated the major companies as I said earlier and it seemed like a right modernisation. It was really exciting. So things were looking good, right? Well, not really. Maybe these things take a while. At the 2007 World Cup, Japan won no games. In fact, they couldn't even get a win out of their game against Canada, who were the worst team in the competition. After levelling with a last-minute try, the Japanese actually celebrated a draw with Canada wildly. He summons the potential... I suppose you could say it's fair enough. They've avoided a loss for the first time in World Cup history. I guess it could have been worse, right? They go back to Japan. They spend four years preparing for the next World Cup. I guess they were more competitive this time than last time, and we can be even more competitive in 2011. Only in 2011, the exact same thing happens. No, really. The exact same thing. Canada draws with Japan in the only winnable game. Only this time, it's Canada who levels with the last-minute kick. Surely a shot at goal. Are we going to get another draw between these two nations? 17. He likes it. 23 all. Things are reaching a breaking point. In 2012, the Japanese team lost to the French Barbarians in a game with more than 100 points scored. I think it was somewhere in the 60s to somewhere in the 30s. In the post-game press conference... Newish coach Eddie Jones lambasted his team and he made very memorable comments. Not funny. It's not funny. That's, that's the problem with Japanese rugby. Seriously. Not seriously about winning. If we want to win, we've got to go out and 
physically smash people and we didn't do it. We give it out to the French barbarians. He faced blowback publicly for this. But he's actually since spoken on the value he thought the incident brought to the team. Uh, I've had, had a lot of people send me comments about it. But the surprising thing was at the end of it, the chairman came up to me and he said, it's about time someone said that. Um, and I think everyone realised you know, Japan was one of those teams, they get beaten 50 to 20 and at the end of the game everyone would clap. And the players would be happy with that and we had to change that. The Japan needed a wake-up call was no mystery to those watching around the world, and Jones and Co pledged to bring rugby in Japan to its full potential in preparation for the 2015 World Cup. The reforms and investment of the early 2000s began having their long-term effects in the rugby system, despite previous World Cup appearances, and I think it's clear coaching has improved. Most importantly, foreign players and coaches are now heading to Japan to be part of the action, and they're giving domestic players valuable exposure to high-level play from overseas. Now, to get an insight into just what that's like, I've had a chat to Ken Dobson, who currently coaches rugby in Japan. He's had a number of roles in the rugby community over there. Uh, So first, just a little bit about the man. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background, Ken? Uh, Sure. Yeah, look, I grew up in Brisbane, and uh, I I played all my club rugby at the University of Queensland uh, Rugby Club, Mighty Red Heavies. And then when I was uh, 20, 21, I've had, I had a couple of trials stints over with a couple of Japanese top league teams. Pretty much re- stopped playing rugby at about the age of 26. Um, I started working and then I, I used to manage uh, Central Queensland. Sort of from that, I, um, I had a couple of short-term contracts coaching uh, as a skills coach at a university in Japan. From there, uh, I took on a role um, at a club called Hokkaido Barbarians, uh, where I became a men's and women's uh, seventh coach. And that's where I currently am now. So you trialed with some Japanese top league teams. What was that like? I mean, I mentioned earlier that domestic rugby's improved a lot. Uh, did you feel like you could see that on the ground? And maybe you could give us some info about how it was different to Australian rugby and also let us just kind of gauge what the level of play was like. Look, uh, look, yeah, well, look, when I trialed with, um, with Kubota which in the top league back in 2000, Eight, I um, look. I, I got injured on the very first day of, of, the, of the trial camp. I was meant to be in there for about three days, and uh, very first day. Um, definitely within the last twelve or thirteen years uh, in, in Japan, uh, the level's gone up sort of considerably. Like oh, I couldn't even fathom um, a, a player of, of my ability um, being able to step into, into top league now. Um, back then, probably if you're if you're a solid maybe reserve grader in Brisbane or Sydney, you, you probably would have been okay. Um, definitely not the case now. Um, so you, know, you don't have a, a regional based side like like the Queensland Reds or the New South Wales Waratahs or the ACT Rebels. They're all run by corporations. So you've got the Panasonic Wild Knights. You've got uh, Suntory, which is a beverage beverage maker. Absolutely. So that's really interesting because the corporate aspect of the game seems really important. So in the course of looking at all of this, actually, I found a lot of criticism of it, though, uh, especially in terms of player development. Do you think it hurts the development of young players over there to be in a system like that? Look, I can't speak for every um, obviously sort of side that there is here in Japan, mm-hmm. but I mean, I think. You know, you know, each side's probably going to have their own issues and their own sort of, you know, good times or strengths and own, own, own issues, but, you know, problems as well to overcome. Um, with regards to maybe maybe the retardation of development, uh, particularly in the amateur area, that's, that's, that's definitely right because, you know, if, if you're a very talented 18-, 19-year-old who should be playing against men, so there are a couple of sort of, I guess, instances with regards to company rugby and university rugby and the way rugby is structured as a whole in Japan, which can definitely delay that sort of, 
um, development that you might not see over in perhaps Australia or New Zealand or South Africa or England. Yeah, well, if that's having a major impact on the performance of the national team and the young players, like you said, and also as the system as a whole, are there any strategies, do you think, that teams and clubs can do to sort of take the edge off that effect and maybe blood young players? Um, look, you can already see, um, so I know some of sort of the, the company teams like, uh, for example, Panasonic, very successful, very strong company team, a lot of Australians playing there, Beric Barnes, Dan Heenan, uh, Digby Yuani that was there for a couple of years, uh, Benny Gunter. Um, look, they're a strong uh, top league side and they, they've, they've formed a very close relationship with, um, with one of the strong university sides um, where, they, where they train together. And uh, even even have a couple of instances where a player is in their fourth year of university, but they were off playing for Panasonic. So a couple of um, universities and companies, probably for the benefit of that player and mutual benefit of each other, have tried to work together and perhaps bridge that gap. So with the World Cup coming up, Ken, I do have some World Cup-related questions. Can you feel the hype on the ground? You know, what's it like uh, in Japan in the lead-up? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of lot of fan hype. You know, you walk around. I live in Sapporo, up in Hokkaido, which is on the North Island of Japan, and we're hosting two games. One one's Australia versus Fiji, and the other is England versus Tonga. And look, just walking around the station or the city area, there, there's posters everywhere. Um, if you turn on TV, uh, you know, you've got Michael Leach, the Japanese uh, captain. He's on, um, or, or another couple of famous sort of Japanese players, uh, Goro Maru Ayumu, and. A couple of other guys, they're, they're, they're appearing on various sort of advertisement commercials. I would say most people are, are well aware that the Rugby World Cup is going to be in, in a couple of months. And, um, you know, judging by ticket sales, uh, it's going to be a, a, a raging success. Mm. So just to cap it off, I thought I'd ask you quickly, uh, just what's something really unique you think about Japanese rugby? You know, what I guess are the moments where you think in the course of being over there that this would just not happen? In Australia, and that our listeners might not yet appreciate about the nature of the game over there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. Good. Good question. Um, yeah. Look. Uh, <laughs> I suppose I've been here for a while now, so I guess uh, a lot of the things that are a little bit unique have um, have perhaps come the norm to me. But uh, I guess I guess one would be would be uh, pro- probably the level of um, of respect that Japanese players uh, show, not only to everyone involved in the game, but also look to the ground. Every time a Japanese player enters the field, whether it's out of the game or coming from the reserve bench, uh, they'll bow to the field. And every time they come off, whether it's the end of the game or they've been subbed, uh, they'll, they'll bow to the field again. And that's just a bit of a kind of respect. Uh, you know, thank you to the field, thank you to the god of the field, perhaps, for looking me up after me today and ensure I don't get hurt and ensure I, I have a good time and enjoy the standard rugby. So look, I would say when I, when I first witnessed that, I was you know, really, really quite, um, quite a, just a little, a wonderful little sign that. Marries up the spirituality of the Japanese with uh, the global game of rugby union. Well, that ends our cameo from the wonderful Ken Dobson. And what a nice story to end on, too. Maybe I'll take up bowing to the field before my games from now on. I always think it's amazing to see our cultures become entrenched in the way we play rugby. And with that, I guess our little history of rugby in Japan has finally brought us to the beginning of this episode, to the last World Cup. Despite that famous victory against South Africa, and winning three games, Japan did not make a quarterfinal in 2015. They went home, and they've spent the last four years getting ready for revenge in September. This World Cup is going to be truly amazing, and hopefully this little history has taught you all a bit about why it's so exciting. Sport's always a wonderful spectacle, but to see Japan do well at a home Rugby World Cup after all their rugby community has been through would be something extremely special. 
The Japanese team is the strongest it's ever been, and it would be special, in my view, for the sport, the region, and even the world for them to succeed. But in sport, as in life, nothing is certain, and glory must be earned. On the 20th of September, 7.45pm Tokyo time, Japan is going to take the first kick of the Rugby World Cup. That's when the real story begins. I'll be watching, and I hope you will too.